is the Roaring Elephant Podcast from the 20th of June 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my lovely, wonderful co-host <laughs> and editor and general all-round audio guy, Yon. Okay, good morning, Dave, <laughs> and what do you need from me? <laughs> Uh, I'll ask you. I'll hit you up for the favour later. But I just wanted to, you know, butter you up early. Okay, mission accomplished, my dear. <laughs> Excellent. So, welcome. Yeah, you too. And this uh, this episode, no excuses. I've actually did my homework. We actually have a raffle winner. Yeah, we fired up the uh, the randomised prize giver chooser thinger, and uh, it indeed selected. Am I supposed to announce the winner? Yeah, come on! So, it's, it's so it's so much pressure on me. <laughs> it's, it's 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 it's. I mean, this this guy is winning a full year O'Reilly Safari book Safari books online membership sponsored by Sarji, the guys who were on our last episode. If you haven't listened to them yet, go and have a listen there. And the uh, winner is drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. And I'm probably going to butcher the name here. Excuses for that, but the winner is Whale Imam from Toronto. Hooray! Congratulations! Congratulations! You will be contacted uh, via Twitter account. I'll be sending you a little message there with instructions on how you can collect your prize. Now, since it's just this is a prize where you don't have to do any traveling, I can't imagine why Will wouldn't uh, accept it. But if he ha- if he doesn't, we do have a runner up as we usually do. And if for some reason Will does not accept the prize, the prize is going to go to Michele Lamarga. Excellent. Congratulations, everybody. Congratulations, us. And Indeed. congratulations, Saji. Yes, thank you, Saji, for uh, sponsoring this particular raffle prize. Very much appreciated. And thanks to everybody that uh, entered the competition. Yeah, every time we do a competition like this, we get more and more entries, which makes my work harder. But uh, that's the good thing. That's what we want. <laughs> no, no, you're supposed to say, but that makes the, the competition chooser winner finger harder. The competition thing and winner harder. Of course, I do it manually. I have to make. I have to make a big hat or cut up little <laughs> pieces of paper. The hat needs to get bigger all the time. This is effort, man. You're supposed to say that we use big data for this. Come Ooh. on, get with the program. I'm using machine <laughs> learning, but then I'm the machine and I'm not learning. So let's let's go to the news <laughs> section because it's going Moving rails on. rails here. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, news for the week. Um, what have you got to talk about then? Uh, I've got a nice article, actually. I'm very happy I found this one. It's a pretty recent one. It's an article on the MapR blog site. Mm-hmm. And uh, as usual with me, it's about Spark. And it's called Churn Prediction with Apache Spark Machine Learning. Yeah. It's by Carol McDonald. And actually, when you're listening to this on the Twan yet, you're going to be too late. But she's also going to be doing a live tutorial online on the 15th of June. But again, once you hear this, that will be passed. But there's probably going to be a re-listen or something there. Yeah. And I took this article for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because I'm very happy that MapR has put out a very nice blog. Mm-hmm. I've been looking at their site more often and more often than not, I wasn't very happy with what I've found, but this is really a nice blog. It's it's lengthy. Mm-hmm. It's a complete explanation of churn analysis. And while I've seen a lot of recommendation engines in Spark online and how to do that, 
churn analysis is something that's very relevant. It's done all over the world. It's a very useful use case. But I haven't really seen that many totally laid out examples of how to do this. So that's a good thing here. And in this case, <clears throat> excuse me, they, she really goes into detail on every little step from the whole, uh, where you get your data, how you're going to do it, what, this is a classification problem, so what does that mean? And she gives the example of uh, ducks, if it walks and swims and quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. <laughs> yep. I haven't seen that one in correlation with uh, machine learning either yet, so that's another first. And she goes about the uh, algorithm she's using, she's going for the decision trees, I think there were weighted decision trees, but that's uh, that doesn't matter. So she shows you how that works. Uh, she looks at the example data set, uh, the whole uh, code and data set. There are links in the blog post where you can download it all. So if you want to do it yourself, you can do this. So it's all nicely put together. She talks about the software versions. This actually works on Spark 2.0.1 and above. And because the reason for that is that she's actually using the new schema uh, functionality that's in Spark 2. So you probably can make this run on lower versions of Spark as well. But if you want to do it like she did it, and uh, apparently using this uh, schema where the Spark engine doesn't have to infer the schema, but you actually tell Spark, this is the schema of my data set, that makes it faster. I haven't yeah, yeah. I have no experience myself yet with that, but I can see why that would be. Yeah, agreed. <clears throat> and basically, yeah, it's uh, loading up a CSV file. She does a bit of uh, data exploration on it to see what's in there. It's, of course, a um, supervised learning example. So the training set is already labeled. So the, uh, which means that the entries in there already have a little field that says this was a churn result or a non-churn result. So you can train your model, see yep. how well your model performs. So the data exploration thing has nice graphs. And uh, funnily enough, uh, well, from the title of the episode people already have maybe deduced that we're talking about zeppelin later on and the examples here are also from a zeppelin notebook which doesn't mean it shouldn't work in uh, uh jupiter or just on cli either but uh, it's a nice uh, continuation of the subject let's say and then she goes into the uh, whole feature selection, again explaining how machine learning pipelines work, which are loading data, feature extraction, training the model, and then using the model to predict your, uh, predict your new data points, of course. And the one last thing I really want to mention here is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, she's using a decision tree. And she's actually outputted the decision tree that was calculated by machine learning. And in my experience, and probably a lot of other people's experiences too, when people talk about machine learning, they kind of expect magic and that whatever that machine learning thing is doing, that must be so complicated that no human could ever understand it. At the end of this article, there's a little black square with the output from the uh, decision tree that was created by this machine learning algorithm. And basically what you see there is if feature 11 is smaller or equal than 3, if feature three is smaller or equal than 222.4, if, 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 else, 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 if, else, and so on. So it's just a simple if, uh, multi-branched if test that kind of decides if your solution, if your data point is a churn or non-churn result. And basically, that's what machine learning does. Yep. It doesn't do magic. It does something very simple, but it does it on so much data that a human just can't do it. Yeah, I mean, humans can 
generally speaking, find patterns in you know a, a relatively small number of elements. But that, that, that's the whole that's the whole point and power yeah. of machine learning is you can just feed it as much data as you can find, and it will it will hopefully identify the the correlations and the the inflection points yeah. between those different parameters. But yeah, yeah. and it's especially nice. the number of dimensions you have in your data, because if you have, I know, a, a thousand rows, but it's only one value and one label, then you can just do a simple sort and see where it jumps the median or something like that. So that's still human feasible. But if yeah. you have a data set with like 20 dimensions, there's no way to, for a human, any human that I know, <laughs> to keep combinations of 20 dimensions in your head. That, that just doesn't, yeah, people aren't built that way, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a the nice thing about this. I mean, you you touched on it briefly. Is basically there's a there's a GitHub repo for the code. Mm-hmm. There's a Jupyter notebook um, of the code in Python, and there's a Zeppelin notebook of the code in Scala. So yeah. it's very complete. It's a really nice, nice blog. I mean, all blogs should be like this. Yeah. No. It. I like it because it goes through. It actually. I mean, I'm not a developer as I've said many, many times, and we'll carry on repeating. Um, but it goes through it from a level that I can very easily follow. Mm-hmm. Um, it builds up the story of, you know, as you say, the kind of different data that you need. And churn is is part, it's really, it's part of an overall kind of um, customer 360 sort of set of knowledge. But it's something that practically every um uh, practically every industry vertical you know, makes use of some form of churn analysis or needs to improve their um, their churn prediction. So, you know, everything from financial services, uh, telcos, insurance, you know, it's just, it's everywhere. Everybody is dealing with, with churn. It's so easy for people to switch from one service to the next nowadays and various promotions are made mm-hmm. to make that sort of thing easy. So people that can improve that churn and the the churn prediction, of course, is really about making sure that if you think something someone is likely to churn, that you, you can then trigger an internal business process that maybe, you know, proactively reaches out to them, gives them some love, and actually finds out that the next piece on from this is, you know, what particular interactions maybe could be done to prevent that churn. Yep. And I think, you know, this is this is not the be-all and end-all answer. It's not a case of implement this and your work here is done. This is just the very first part of that journey yeah. and that, that sort of step. But, yeah, really nice. Yeah. Uh, the application of this is actually bigger than that, even because churn is just cust- uh, customer retention, uh, let's call it that. But the, if you look purely at, the mach- uh, at it as a machine learning exercise, this is a classification thing. And depending on what kind of features you have, you're classifying your customers into he will run away, he will not run away. But yes. any, there's an, an awful lot of things in the world are purely classification things. So, I mean, customer segmentation in, in marketing and going down to going down from sort of basic customer segmentation down into, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at sort of basically individual customized marketing at this point. And yeah, so it's just another example. But even further than that, I mean, uh, cancer research, for example, will this, is this patient uh, going to have cancer or not? Is he not going to have, is he, how do you say this, eligible for cancer? Is he in the target? High risk. High risk or not high risk. Thank you. Yeah. That, that's also a classification thing, right? Of course, your feature is yeah. going to be totally different. It's not going to be the number of uh, support contacts 
contacts that patient had is going to be how many white blood count, red blood count. I'm not a med- medical person at all, so I have no idea about this. But yeah, you're talking don't, about don't, that kind don't of have something. John operating on you. That that would be bad. <laughs> Unless you're machine learning, that works. So no, I like the, the 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 blog very much. So we're going to do a tweet out that as well to uh, congratulate Carol with uh, excellent work here. Yeah, yeah. And I wish you the and, best for uh, her live uh, uh, tutorial. Indeed, indeed. Very good. Well, that's uh, my news article. Over to you. All right. So I have a blog article on the Cloudera website. Um, This time we're talking about HDFS maintenance state. Um, So let's talk a little bit about uh, the article first, and then I think it's worth probably having a conversation around some of the broader um, things that happen within cluster maintenance as a whole. So this article is really talking about um, some of the uh, conditions that can occur when you're performing updates or upgrades um, to either hardware or, um, or potentially OS-level upgrades and things like that. Um, HDFS supports a number of different um, features that uh, can get enacted when you're performing a variety of different maintenance activities. So obviously you've got um, a variety of different functionality to perform rolling upgrades, um, and Bari's had that for for quite some time now, and there's underpinning hooks within the Hadoop layer to allow that to happen and rolling restarts and all that kind of good stuff. Um, There's also functionality to decommission data nodes, so or nodes generally. So you can actually select a node, decommission it, and that will, you know, essentially uh, begin the process of um, draining down the data in that particular data node, or at least marking that data node as uh, it's departing. Therefore, we should re-replicate all the data on that data node to ensure we got you know, the standard three replicas of data, not including that data node. Once that process has completed, then um, you can essentially uh, eject that node from the cluster. Yeah, the holiday Uh, for decommissioning is to avoid the network storm you get if you just pull out a slave. Exactly, exactly. But um, there's kind of a a halfway house between sort of decommissioning and um, just kind of standard operational I'm just doing things to a node. And this blog post is talking about this concept of a maintenance state. So the the standard time, uh, I did come across this not too long ago. I think it's about 10 minutes. Um, if you've got a data node that is unresponsive uh, for, a, I think it's about 10 minutes by default, um, then HDFS will mark it as gone and will begin uh, replicating that data which for the most part is fine um, unless you're doing some, you know, maybe some uh, some hardware updates, you know, you're adding more memory or, you know, performing, uh, you know, swapping fans or power supplies or whatever it might be. Um, and, you know, that might take less than 10 minutes, um, but it might not. I've actually done this where we had to move systems physically from one rack to another rack. Yeah, so yeah. we knew we no data was going to be lost. We wanted to keep the thing up and running, but you just had to take the note out of a rack, take it down the stairs, put it in another rack, <laughs> and you had to take the cluster down because it started rebuilding everything every time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the the concept of this maintenance state, I think, is really useful, and it's um, uh, so this blog post talks about basically the the upstream um, jiras for it. Um, the the various sort of 
um, settings that you can use to enable. And the idea is that uh, if you are performing some form of scheduled maintenance on uh, on a data node, you can mark it as in maintenance state. HDFS will not then uh, begin replicating that data um, just because it's gone down for a period of time. You know, you you put these nodes into this maintenance state. You you know take them out of the cluster, take them out of the rack, walk them upstairs, downstairs, into another building. You know, perform the maintenance options that uh, you think you need to do. Reintroduce it, and then obviously when it all comes back up, um, put it out of maintenance state, and it will it will reintroduce, and you won't get that sort of upgrade. Um, sorry, that rebuild, um, re-replication storm happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's quite a nice um, sign of the um, sort of continued focus on enterprise features within um, within HDFS and with, within kind of Hadoop generally, because these are the kinds of things that um, you know a lot of web scale environments would just go. Ah, it's fine. We just pull them out and slap them back in and you know the cluster does its thing in the background and we really don't we really don't worry um but yeah the, so there's there's a few things uh, to note is that uh, the blog article links to one particular jira hdfs 7877 um but if you look at that the current status of it is open and it, the resolution is unresolved but it does talk about the fact there's a second jira which is HDFS uh, six seven two nine, which is a essentially a duplicate. It seems like um, six seven two nine was the original kind of we need to support maintenance mode for data nodes, um, and then seven eight seven seven came in afterwards. Um, they obviously hadn't picked up on the fact that there was an earlier Jira, but it seems like seven eight seven seven was the one that had the better overall implementation and design. So it looks like code exists. Well, code definitely exists because mm-hmm. it's now supported um, in uh, CDH version uh, 5.11 and above, um, 5.11, I should say, and above. Um, uh, I, but I haven't seen it actually in like fully accepted upstream um, trunk. So I guess they're they're fairly comfortable with, uh, with using it and... Uh, are sort of uh, they rolled it into the distro early, but I think it's a it's a nice feature. Yeah, it's definitely a useful feature. Uh, one question I have is: Does it have some kind of uh, safeguard that you don't put the three nodes that have common data replications? Uh, if you, put, I mean, every data block is sort of replicated three times. If I put three nodes in maintenance mode and they all have those three replicates, and I then yes. take them offline, eh? But the, problem of course is that you can't say that node one is replicated to node two and three it's more like this block on node one is on these two other nodes and this other block on node one is maybe on other nodes how can they are they saying you can only have one node in maintenance state at any one given time no. how can they check this no so what they do is there's a let me see if i have actually scanned through this so there are a set of restrictions um that um, are checked when you try when you attempt to put a node into into maintenance mode. Um, so if you're putting more than one, basically you set what you want to allow the minimum replication to be. So for example, if your standard um, uh, replication is 
three, mm-hmm. and you only allow uh, the replication minimum to be two, mm-hmm. you can pull um, you can pull a number of different data nodes, or you can put a number of different data nodes into maintenance mode as long as none of them have conflicting. Um, blocks of data. Okay. But that does uh, mean that putting a node into maintenance mode takes a while. It's not a immediate action. So just putting a flag up is like a requesting to the node to become maintenance mode. That's correct. And then you wait for the name node I'm imagining to say, yep, it's okay, or nope, yeah. you're going to be breaking your stuff. Okay. That's correct, yeah. Okay. Oh, nice. Um, but, I mean, it, it kind of leads me on to um, overall kind of um, cluster operational um, conversations generally. I mean, the one of the things that people often ask me about, because my background is largely infrastructure, is, um, you know, what do we do uh, with things like um, OS updates and, you know, also eventually you know, OS upgrades. And this is this is just one of those sort of tools in the toolbox that helps with that overall process. But, I mean, typically... Um, one of the key things with, uh, especially with environments like uh, Hadoop clusters, is first of all, you want to minimize the amount of software, the amount of packages that you've got as part of that. There were some changes in um, some of the ways that some of the RPMs were built, at least for um, for HDP, not too long ago, that basically changed the uh, the requirements that you needed to an even tighter, smaller set of packages. So you may well find there's some there's some additional packages that you can remove, and therefore you know not have to continue patching on a regular basis. But then, in terms of um, in terms of actually upgrading packages, most organisations have a standard. Um, you know, set of processes and procedures they go through. And by and large, Hadoop is, you know, really no different from that perspective. There are certain things you're going to want to keep a relatively close eye on, like the the JDK and things like that. But overall, you know, you can upgrade um, software on a, on a Hadoop data node just as you would pretty much anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other thing I can think of really is overall um, OS upgrades and, you know, work with your OS vendor on that. Some things, uh, you know, and also work with your, um, your Hadoop distribution partner as well, because there will be some things that change from major OS versions, you know, going from, you know, RHEL 6 to RHEL 7, uh, et cetera, et cetera, are the sort of things that you will need to, to do a bit more planning on. You typically don't want to keep your cluster in a mixed OS state for a long period of time if you can help it. It just confuses matters and makes uh, life uh, significantly more difficult uh, for most people. So, you know, OS OS upgrades like that are usually something where you would certainly make use of something like this maintenance state um, or, you know, doing half a rack at a time, um, you know, or a rack at a time, potentially depending on the, the overall size of your cluster and rolling it through on, you know, regularly scheduled um, time periods, but making sure that in between each sort of chunk of time, you're doing all the kinds of things that we regularly talk about. So you're doing, um, you know, a bunch of your internal benchmarking testing. You're making sure that everything has set, you know, set it and uh, settled and bedded back down uh, before you then make the next kind of tranche of, of modifications. Yeah, I kind of like to pick your brain what your opinion is, because 
uh, many, many moons ago, when I was still working in a data center, we had to upgrade from CentOS 5 to CentOS 6. As I said, many mm-hmm. moons ago. And of course, we didn't have the rolling upgrade functionality that's in the Hadoop vendors distributions today. So we had to do much more ourselves, but we kind of decided there to just do a forklift upgrade, let's say, where we just uh, put down the uh, replication factor to two, I think. Mm-hmm. That way we could uh, take away half a, a third of the cluster and make a new cluster and then do a dist copy. To, to put all the data there, just because we couldn't be, I mean, you're never certain, but we couldn't get yeah. a degree of certainty that the upgrade was not going to kill the thing. Because uh, in those days, also, you didn't have real name node high availability, you had the secondary yeah, name yeah. node. So if that thing got corrupted, we were going to have to do it anyway with a lot more downtime. And yeah. so we could do it a lot more uh, control, let's say. Yeah. With today's state of of uh, of software and the availability of features and whatever, and these maintenance uh, uh, maintenance mode of the nodes, would you, if uh, Red Hat comes out with uh, RHEL eight, which is going to happen at some point, I guess, mm-hmm. would you trust the rolling upgrade? Uh, so. I would be very, very careful. I would make sure that I have, um, you know, a suitable dev test, you know, pre-prod environments that I could, um, that I could run that sort of testing phase through. Um, by and large, I have done those kind of rolling upgrades before. Um, and okay, it's not, it's not completely without flaw. Typically, um, I certainly wouldn't uh, wouldn't be jumping up and down to be the first one to have tried it. That's for sure. <laughs> do it on um, a Friday evening at five o'clock and then go away for the weekend, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just I just uh, hit the upgrade button and then uh, and then wander <laughs> off. Actually, I'd make sure it was a long weekend because yeah, that's, that's always better. Yeah, and then possibly take a a few weeks of holiday. So surely it'll be fixed by the time I come back. <laughs> um, but yeah, so typically I would actually test. I would trust those upgrades, but you know, trust but verify. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you need to do a lot of testing ahead of doing something major like that. I mean, the yeah. other thing to remember is that there are some OSs that actually don't support um, upgrades from major versions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So you know, check with your OS vendor, work with your OS partner, work with your Hadoop distribution partner to make sure that uh, you know everybody's aligned on on the steps that need to be taken, and. The only other the only other thing I would mention is not just work with them when you're like planning this stuff, but actually um, most vendors certainly um, you know my experience with Hortonworks is we really like to know um, when you're going through upgrades. So please just you know raise a support ticket, um, assuming you have support, notify your your vendor of true mm-hmm. of choice that you're going through an upgrade process in X number of weeks. Um, you know make sure it's really you know. By all means, to kind of do it again the the sort of the week before, um, and you know, say these are the steps they're going through. Most vendors will have a, um, a special set of operations that they can share with you um, as you know things that you can also check. And you know, most vendors also have professional services teams that can also help guide you through this um, should you need some some particularly specialist support. So. You know, yeah. you're not alone out there. There's many people doing this 
all the time. There's no there's no reason for it to be, um, you know, too dangerous and scary. Um, and if it is something that you're concerned about, then, you know, reach out to your partner of choice. Yeah, yeah, you shouldn't underestimate the importance that your integrator, vendor, whatever, uh, puts on knowing that you're going to do this. Because if you do an upgrade and you have a bad experience, you'll blame them anyway. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and also, the, there are some, I mean, some people say to me, oh, well, why isn't this information all public? And honestly... <sighs> It's it's really difficult yeah. uh, in my experience because a lot of this is almost specific Very to specific, yeah. yeah specific to given instances given installations you know what exact version you're upgrading from and to which components are you using how are you using those components what kind of hardware are you using are you? yeah 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 and you putting know, some you, kind of generic uh, instructions online that's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the high-level stuff's all there, obviously, mm -hmm. but the, there's always some sort of nitty-gritty details that, you know, a variety of people have, um, you know, spilt blood kind of working out. <laughs> and so, yeah, definitely work with your yeah. partner of choice and, uh, you know, make sure they're aware, make sure you're working with them to, to get it done yeah. smoothly and cleanly. But it, yeah. it shouldn't be in this day and age with the tools and tech we've got uh, with the platforms and you know OSs and config management tools in the state they are, it shouldn't be. Um, it will be something that no doubt causes a state of nervousness, but it shouldn't be something that that really um, you know causes any significant issue for organisations in this day and age. There will be, I'm certain, you know, little um, issues here and there that you'll have to go and you know tidy up certain configs that have changed and all that sort of thing, but. For the most part, it should be reasonably pain-free. Okay. Well, you heard it here from Dave Russell himself. Upgrading should be pain-free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but don't hold me to it. <laughs> <laughs> if it didn't work, call Dave. He'll fix it for you. Yeah, Office absolutely. Station. Absolutely. Um, for a very, very large sum of money. Thank you very much. Uh, payable up front. All right. Uh, links in the show notes as usual of course so if you want to uh, read up on the articles we mentioned go to the show notes and you'll find links there uh, Dave also included links to the different Jira's he mentioned so all that goodness is there that's it for the news section after the music we'll have uh, we have an interview for you with uh, Bernard Walter who is a engineer at Hortonworks and he actually had a talk at the DataWorks Summit a couple of months ago about, uh, well, Dave, I think is your name. You, you call it modern day airships, but it's about the advanced visualization in Zeppelin. And in the interview, uh, Bernard's going to talk us through how he did this, what is, uh, why he did it, what his reasons were and what the problems were and, uh, how it all ended up. So, uh, Excellent. have a good listen to that and, uh, We'll hear you back. See you after the break. After the break. So, we have a special guest with us, Bernard. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me in your podcast. So, uh, Menard actually has been uh, listening to the odd episode here and there as well. 
Um, and uh, we've invited him here today to talk about modern day airships, fabulous visualizations, and the power of, of data science and Zeppelin notebooks. So thanks for joining us. This is, I guess, loosely based on uh, a talk you gave at the uh, at the DataWorks Summit. But perhaps first, um, introduce yourself. Tell us a little about. Tell us and the audience a little bit about you. Yes, of course. My name is Bernhard Walter. So I work in the big data area at Hortonworks, mainly focusing on data science. And coming from a strong statistical background, I was always interested in visualizing data because only data I see really talks to myself. And that's why when I looked at Zeppelin, which is a notebook system that works very well with Spark and many other systems, I recognized that the visualization part is not what I really wanted. So I built it myself. And that's, I guess, what Dave wants to talk today about why I did that and uh, what I did. So yes, indeed. We'd love to talk to you a bit about your experience of enhancing the visualizations in Zeppelin um, and yeah, find out a bit more about what inspired you to uh, head down that track. Yeah, I need to cut in here because I hear Bernard saying that he wasn't happy with the visualizations in Zeppelin. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I am usually am, so do that, go ahead. But we used to have Jupiter or Jupiter, or however you pronounce it. And then Zeppelin came along, and the thing that Zeppelin was touted for was better visualization. Am I wrong? Yes. Uh, no, it depends on what you mean with visualization. So, uh, graphic things. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Thanks for that, Jon. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you look at Zeppelin in the visualization, it's about visualizing the result of a SQL query. For me, that is similar to a uh, simple describe of data. It gives you an idea how the data looks like, but it doesn't really tell you a lot. And that's the same as visualization. While a simple scatter plot or a simple line plot might be nice to get a first idea, sometimes you want to have different types of plots and sometimes you just want to have a very specific way of visualizing something for a document that you need to present uh, about your results. So, and this is not possible. And a second thing that is not possible in Zeppelin, uh, I think that we are going more and more into a time of real-time data, so streaming data. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that even streamed data needs to be visualized. That is, you plot something and then the plot changes the more data comes in. That could be from a streaming source or something that I have presented uh, at Dataworks Summit. I uh, built a TensorFlow model and I wanted to see the model learning by seeing how loss and accuracy change while the model was learning. So the model learned in batches. Every batch I received or extracted loss and accuracy and plotted that. So that helps you when it's an hour-long process to create your model to see whether it works well and to continue then. Or if you see that your change of the parameters didn't improve it, that you can stop it and don't waste time. 
So that's what I meant with what you think about visualization. It's a type of graph from very specific to streamed graphs to just a little bit of a description. And just the last part is something that is out of the box in Zeppelin. So should I see this as, on the one hand, you have the visualization where the data scientist who's working with the data can see if there's outliers, just see statistical information about the data underground with a bit of a bar graph, while mm -hmm. what you're talking about is more about consuming the, in, the intents behind the data, making that visual. Exactly. And to create very specific visualizations of your result. Mm -hmm. They're usually not pie charts and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, bar charts only. Unless you're a bakery, then you want pie charts. Yeah. So uh, if you are in the Python ecosystem and uh, research a little bit, you will immediately come to Matplotlib. Mm -hmm. You can do a lot with Matplotlib. But I think it's not that easy. And it's a very mature library. And the aesthetics are a little bit from many years ago. So... <laughs> Compared to what you see from D3, the data-driven documents, and other stuff that's in the browser, it is just not that compelling. At least that is my uh, view on it. And it doesn't integrate as well into the browser. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so, how yeah. did you, so how did you go from the, the initial sort of looking at, at Zeppelin and seeing these very, very basic you know, pie charts, bar plot, bar charts, and things like that. You know, what did you then sort of look at integrating, and and you know, how difficult was that integration? Yeah, so I could now say that I had a clear plan, but of course it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I learned about Bouquet from the Anaconda Continuum I/O guys, which mm -hmm. is a very powerful system, and it's very nicely integrated into. Uh, Jupyter, and it allows to change data. So you get a handle for your visualization, and you can just continue piping data into it. So since it runs on Jupyter, my idea was it'll run on Zeppelin. That must be easy. Uh, the, that must be easy took me a few days, not to say two weeks, to understand how Bouquet does that. Because Bouquet very, very sophisticated leverages the Jupyter display and um, communication system. Mm -hmm. Because what is the problem? A notebook system is built on web technology. That is HTML, JavaScript, and so on. The code you enter and run runs on a remote interpreter. Let's call it the Python interpreter of Spark or Scala interpreter whatsoever. So you kind of have to marry the both worlds so that when you write some Python code, it has some impact on the browser notebook that you work in. This is something the... Um, Jupyter guys have solved with the IPython uh, communication um, scheme mm -hmm. or mechanism. And this is not available in Zeppelin. So my first idea was, well, why not just build something similar? Um, but I don't didn't want to invent a graphic library myself. So I thought it would be nice to uh, get the bouquet stuff running in Zeppelin. That was the first idea because that would give me um, dynamic charts and that would give me the 
power of bokeh to really create nice result visualizations. Um, again, that did some digging into the IPython stuff. So I know the IPython code base now better than I ever wanted. And I was <laughs> able to shoot up a WebSocket server and build a shim on top of Zeppelin so that Bokeh just thinks it sits on Jupiter. So Jupiter stuff, Bokeh sends down to my shim, and the shim will now translate that to something that uh, works in Zeppelin. Uh, could you explain what the shim is? Uh, a small layer that uh, pretends to be something that is actually isn't. It might be not the best uh, definition, but at the end, it's, as I mentioned, a small layer that translates from one API to another one. Yeah. So typically a shim is, is a wedge. It's something you, 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 you stuff into a gap to, to, you know, to make a, a gap between two things solid. So in, in software terms, a shim is just a, a, a translator, a set of interfaces. Yeah. Exactly. So that worked very well. Uh, took some time to understand and rebuild the stuff, but then um, Bokeh worked uh, as expected. You could do get a handle, you could change your graph. That was nice. The disadvantage a little bit was the external WebSocket server. Who wants to run something like that? Mm-hmm. So um, I had a look at Zeppelin. Zeppelin is built on Angular. And I had to dig a little bit in my brain because a long time ago I worked with Angular and remembered that Angular allows to watch JavaScript variables, some some very interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was able to leverage that and replace my external WebSocket server with some Angular stuff. So that meant that now the whole uh, solution was kind of Mm self-contained and you just could just download the... um, Python-based shim, import that into your Zeppelin, and afterwards, Bokeh worked as expected. There was a slight problem that in Jupyter, there is a one-to-one relationship between your notebook and the backend. Mm-hmm. In Zeppelin, many notebooks can sit on the same backend. The disadvantage of Bokeh is they rely on the one-to-one relationship and have a global state. Mm-hmm. So, that's why, additionally, I had to build another little shim to uh, build a session-based state on top of Bokeh. But that is only necessary if you have Bokeh running in more than one tab in your browser. So that was the very beginning of the whole journey. It took a lot of time, but uh, it turned out that it's only the beginning. Um I discussed then with the community, some of the community, what to do about that. And uh, to better understand what would be necessary in Zeppelin as an enabler to allow dynamic graphics or something like Bokeh, I found out that there is only two functions necessary. It is from your Python code or Scala code, be able to register a JavaScript function and to call it. How, how receptive were the community around um, sort of this new method of visualization uh, getting that into, um, uh, into Zeppelin? I think it was uh, uh, very good received because it did something different and it did something that um, 
wasn't easy to get into the existing visualization. Okay. So Zeppelin nice. has additionally something called Helium, which is mm -hmm. a plug-in interface. But again, you just get static visualizations, mm -hmm. which is kind of nice, which is about prepared uh, visualizations, but it's um, not always sufficient. So having uh, reduced the whole thing removed the IPython shim stuff, just reduced to the bare minimum you need, I found out that these are the two things, register JavaScript function and call it. That solves all the problems. So I thought, well, let's now give it a try. Is this something that really helps? So the visualization in Zeppelin is based on a project called NVD3, which is reusable charts that are based on D3.js from Mike mm. Bostock. Yeah. And I made my first uh, visualization with NVD3, and I got kind of hooked up. So I have implemented all of the chart types that NVD3 provides uh, into a new library that just leverages the uh, create or register JavaScript function and call it, and was able for every single chart to make it dynamic. If it's a pie chart and you add a few uh, numbers, the pie chart will adapt. If it's a bar chart, new bars will adapt. So it's all about appending data because my use case was about streaming the data. So uh, that was then the point of time when I introduced that in the Dataworks Summit, the NVD3 stat project and how it works in Zeppelin. So... Coming from Jupyter, which is a very mature notebook system, and being kind of used to it, it was a little bit of a stretch to work with another system because of different shortcuts, different uh, behavior. So I then ported uh, the NVD3 stat back to Jupyter, so it now works for both Jupyter and um, Zeppelin. Nice. Yeah, so that was the kind of journey. It wasn't very obvious. I just wanted to do a one afternoon hack to get a bouquet running, and it got a few weeks' work to uh, get a nice JavaScript-based visualization library where you can stream data into into both Zeppelin and Jupyter. So I mean, I don't I don't know enough. Um, about uh, NVD3 or, or D3.js um, themselves. What are the what are the reasons that you would use the, the subset that's present in NVD3 rather than just using D3.js uh, native? Yeah. So uh, to make it pretty obvious, it's the difference between working in assembler and in let's say uh, a higher language like a Python or something like that. D3 right, right. is extremely powerful, but you need a lot of understanding. The NVD3 guys, what they managed is they have abstracted the whole D3 knowledge away and you just say, I want to have a chart, a scatterplot chart, a few parameters, and then you have it. You say, I want a legend. They have built the code 
to create a legend. So it's all about making life easier. Of course, if you are a D3 guru like Mike Bostock, the guy who wrote that, um, then you can do everything that uh, the NVD3 guys have done yourself and maybe sometimes even nicer. But it's a very huge hurdle to jump over. Yeah, yeah. so it's really a, an accelerator to just uh, get you to where you need it quicker. Yeah. Plus that they took care that every of the charts, whether it's a bar chart, a scatter plot, or a line chart, or a box plot, that the plots look the same. It's the same kind of uh, tool tips that show you the data. It's the same way of uh, hovering over different uh, bullets. And it's the same way of creating these charts. So it makes life much easier. And if you build a library on top of that, you have to resolve it for, let's say, the two or three patterns they have implemented. And then you get the other charts in a much faster and simpler way. Nice, nice. So you, your actual presentation at the DataWorks Summit is is kind of interesting because you know we'll we'll prov- put the uh, links into the the show notes uh, but if you look at the if you go ahead and look at the slides first you'll end up being quite disappointed because there's literally an intro slide a slide talking about some of the options uh, and an outro slide because you actually did your whole um summit presentation from the zeppelin notebook interface yeah tell us, tell, uh, tell us a little bit about that experience that was an interesting experience. I had two talks at the DataWorks Summit. One was in a meetup where I yep. explained how to build a recommender in Spark with Python combined with Pandas and Scikit-learn. And this was the first one I decided to do only in Zeppelin. Notebook systems are not only made to exper- experiment with data and to um, execute some stuff, it's also meant about transporting it as a communication means. So I uh, started in having a Zeppelin notebook just full of code. And that's mm-hmm. how I sat in front of custom, uh, the audience. And I thought, oh my God, let's see how that works. Uh, what I did is I didn't go through the code lines. I told a story over the code. So for every paragraph, I explained why and what you have to take care of and what went well and what didn't went well. And just a few lines I highlighted. And together with the visualization that is in the notebook, that went pretty well. And I got some feedback afterwards that people were surprised, but they really appreciated that it wasn't about slides. It was about real code and something it really worked. So I really executed everything and uh, they could see how Zeppelin worked. And the next day I did the same for the visualization stuff, which is even easier because that's all about charts, moving charts and so on. And again, it's about use the tool to show that it actually is something that exists, actually something that you can work with, but don't explain the code line by line. Tell a story and use it just as your kind of illustration of what you just tell. So I would do it again. My experience was really good with that. And it is not about, hey, you need to trust me. This is a screenshot. It's about, and here it is. You see nothing, I press shift return and you see it. So actually it works. Very nice, very nice. And certainly 
very different to some of the sessions that I attended where it was just somebody plowing through slide after slide, <laughs> you know, reading, reading chunks of text off of each slide. That's, that's not a pleasant experience to sit through, I can tell you. Absolutely. And if you have someone like me that developed the whole stuff himself, there's a lot of anecdotes around what happened while you did that, which makes it much more uh, fun to listen than if somebody gets on stage or received a slide deck from somebody else and tries to survive the presentation. <laughs> so what, what were some of the things as, as you were sort of going through this journey, you know, you, you started off with this initial inspiration of, um, wanting a richer set of visualizations that could actually be used as an end product and also wanting them to be you know, a lot more interactive, dealing with streaming data as well. What were, what were some of the things that surprised you along the way? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, when you look at these libraries like D3, NVD3, and some of the others, what are they actually doing? How do they visualize the stuff? There are two ways in the browser. The one is called Canvas, mm -hmm. which means you have a kind of like the word says Canvas, where you paint your dots on it. And the other one is SVG, SVG the Scalable Vector Graphics. Yeah. Uh, D3 uses SVG, which means every dot, every line, everything is a DOM element that can react on events and so on. That's extremely powerful. However, it's DOM. Whenever you have dealt with uh, browsers and DOM, you know this is not the fastest technology in the world. So it is absolutely fast if we talk about hundreds of dots or scatters in a scatter plot or something like that. But if you start in the thousands of uh, data points, it can get really slow. So um, the alternative is then uh, Canvas, which is mm -hmm. not that um, dynamic. So you can't react on as easy on uh, events because it's not the DOM event model. Um, but it's faster. So the, out there are two different approaches. So that's a D3. And some other guys who the 3JS that work with DOM, and there is Canvas JS and some others that work with Canvas. Both have their advantages. So since we talk about, and that's pretty much the idea of your podcast, I think, the big data ecosystem, we talk about more than 100 uh, points. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about 100,000. That's not really fun to visualize. You might say, hey, you anyhow don't see anything then. But sometimes it's the clouds that you see that help you. Yeah. Well, you can now say, well, let's aggregate that. Let's uh, just have a kind of histogram or some bubble chart or something like that. Yeah, but uh, it's not that easy then to zoom into a bubble. Because if it's aggregated and the chart only has the bubble data, you can make the bubble bigger, but you don't see anything in it. Yeah. So it does make sense sometimes if it's in a very initial phase, if you want to understand your data better, to just brutally plot the whole stuff. So, of course, you can't plot a billion of 
point or something like that. But I think from an aspiration level, a million and something like that should be possible. So this is why I then uh, was quite proud of the NVD3 stat, but not really happy with it because the limitation is the amount of data because of the underlying technology. So I searched a long time whether there is any solution out there that could help with that. Uh, and as I mentioned, most of them just select either or. The ones yeah. who say, well, we want more data, and the others, we want more flexibility, more event-based stuff. And uh, then I remembered a, a company called High Charts, which is a visualization that was used in my last company. And uh, I digged a little bit around, and they currently invented or built a boost model module. So they also depend on DOM and um, the SVG, mm -hmm. but they have a threshold. It's per default, I think, 1,000 uh, plots in a scatter plot. And then they switch over and embed, as far as I understand, a canvas into the SVG. So that is, there is one layer that is a canvas where you can depict lots of data yeah, and they yeah. also managed to implement zooming into it, which is very nice. And you can combine that if you want to add some lines to it with proper uh, SVG that is easier to handle and you can react on. So uh, that is the only library I have found that gives you the flexibility uh, of both. And uh, I currently started a complete new little project to try to come up with something that is very convenient to use, but nevertheless allow you to visualize lots of data as you might see in uh, the big data world. So very much the, the journey continues. Yeah, the journey continues. Uh, I hadn't expected that. As I said, it was about uh, yeah one afternoon to hack Bokeh into Zeppelin, and I had no idea where I will end up. But it's pretty interesting. And the, a nice anecdote around that is when I started my PhD in 1996 or seven, uh, I had a similar situation. I had some data, not big data, obviously, in these days, but I had some data I wanted to see. Visualization of data in these days was possible with S+, which was a commercial version of R or Mathematica or something like that. But they all had limitations. And by chance, I came across something that was called xlispstat. I just saw that it can visualize stuff. It was free. So I immediately loved it and started it and had to see when I started it that first of all, it's lisp and second, it's object-oriented. Two paradigms I had never heard before. <laughs> uh, so I teach myself the two paradigms because even already in these days, I believed in the power of visualizing data, of um, moving data around in space to better understand the shape. And in these days, it took me quite some day, time. And now, 20-something years later, I'm pretty much in the same situation that I had an idea about, now I want to visualize lots of data. And again, there was nothing uh, there in the, yeah, let's say, free uh, ecosystem, or at least uh, free for personal use ecosystem, uh, that would fulfill what I needed. And high charts, by the way, is not free. 
it's a commercial tool. It is very well uh, developed and um, extended, and you can use it under specific circumstances for free. But as soon as you publish something, put it on a web server or something, you have to pay for it. So uh, I wasn't able to find what I needed in the complete open source world. So and that's because my the the requirement of being able to visualize lots of things was more important for me than the pure open source requirement. I kind of kicked the pure open source requirement from my list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, happens all the time. Organizations choose the the tool and technology that's the best fit for them, not necessarily, um, you know, not necessarily tying themselves to a set of uh, principles of open source. They're there to make money, yeah. save money. Yeah, and that's something I learned from NVD3, for example. Uh, it's an amazing library, but the community has done a few things that just were a little bit strange and it made it up into the library. So it wasn't that stable and clean that I would have liked it to be. And uh, that's one of the drawbacks I sometimes see with community projects. If they are not very restrictively guided by someone with a great vision, then they tend to uh, yeah clutter a little bit. Yeah, I mean we we saw this certainly very significantly in early Spark releases where you know APIs were changing almost on a maybe not daily yeah. basis, but sometimes it felt like it. And I think it it's got better as as that that particular project has matured. I think there's still some. There's still some uh, some fairly aggressive changes coming down the pipe, but yeah. I, I think it's the nature of open source to a certain extent that as as it's growing and as a project is growing and finding its its way and finding its shape, it will evolve very rapidly. Um, yeah, and then it, it it's tricky to help you know do something where you can get value out of that project, so you can see. Is this is this useful? Should I be integrating with this project? Should I be making some use of this project? Um, but at the same time, you know, you don't want to be chasing your tail with, you know, a random set of API changes every time you build your code. It breaks in a different way, kind of experience. So yeah, yeah, always so, a tricky balance. Absolutely. One of the criteria for me to select an open source project in the meantime is whether there is someone who is willing to play the nasty guy who says no. Yeah. So if we look at Python, Guido van Rossum has a very specific view on many things and some things just don't get into it. Linux yeah. is another example. Uh, I dealt some time with CoffeeScript because I didn't like JavaScript too much and a Python guy. And the guy who wrote CoffeeScript, he's not really engaged with it anymore. But he gave very strict rules. And sometimes you are a little bit annoyed because you would love that little feature in the language. But on the other side, it is a clean designed language. And that is worth a lot if you work a lot with it. Yeah. Yeah. But you need this kind of small dictator. Project, project guidance. Yeah, Jon, any thoughts? 
Um, no, just maybe uh, Bernardo did all this work now. We figured all this out. Uh, did you leave some uh, trace behind where other people can follow in your footsteps and uh, do this on their own projects? Or yeah, would you say, don't go there? First of all, if you're interested, it's all on GitHub. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's definitely interesting. So it's an interesting uh kind of trip if you're interested in combining two worlds so the data science python world and the web development uh, javascript world it is interested if you're interested uh, interesting if you like visualization of data if you're not only a friend of tables so it's definitely worth uh, working with that and there's lots of stuff still to do it's still not simple we are in 2017 and it's still not simple <laughs> yeah, it's going to stay that way for a long time still but <laughs> do you think it's uh, feasible enough to have this in some kind of production environment that you actually can do this in the Zeppelin or do you still recommend then just dump it to a database somewhere and use whatever tool you use? Um, well, at least from my the stuff I wrote is I'm great in inventing things and building that to a specific level, mm-hmm. but I'm not the best maintainer of the uh, world. <laughs> so uh, if you would ask uh, whether the NVD stat would evolve and would get more mature, I doubt that because my level of interest now is in a different area. It was a great proof of concept technology-wise, mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to guide the Zeppelin community to a direction and to some enablers that will help to build something like that. But uh, if you want to go for something like uh, this visualization stuff, either you understand what the code does and you're your own maintainer, so to Mm -hmm. say, uh, or you search for something that is backed by some company. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Bokeh, it's the Anaconda guys, for example. There's somebody behind being interested in continuing um, and so on. So yeah. I would always be careful, but it gives an idea about what is possible. It's the art of possible. Okay, great. Thanks. Fantastic. Well, uh, any any final words, any final thoughts to anybody out there that's been listening to this and been dreaming about visualizing? Well, I would be happy if some people follow uh, what I do. It's on GitHub, Bernhard-42. Uh, there are a few repos out there, the NVD3 stat. If somebody's interested, if somebody gives some feedback, always highly appreciated. Not promising to build anything into the stuff, but it's a journey. It's about learning. And at the end, I'm interested in coming up with something that is feasible for big data. So there is still a long way to go. Excellent. All right. So before we wind up, there's uh, there's something that we often do with uh, our our special guests uh, that come on and and share a bit of time with them, and that's uh, we ask them to define Hadoop. So imagine that uh, you know you've just bumped into someone and they they ask what you do and you uh, you mention mention the word Hadoop and they look at you strangely and you have to explain it to them. How how would you explain Hadoop to somebody that uh, doesn't doesn't know anything about it? Okay, so for me, if I look at the essence of Hadoop, it's about solving a problem when either your calculations take too long or your data is too big. In both cases, and pretty much only when one of the two cases happens to you, it is time to distribute, 
distribute storage and distribute computing. And if you are in that situation, then Hadoop is a very stable and mature solution. HDFS to distribute all your data, to replicate that data, to be sure that you don't uh, lose some stuff, and everything on top of Yarn, whether it's Spark, Hive, or whatsoever, to do distributed computing and get the insights out of this amount of data that you're interested in, in a time where you need that. But if you don't have lots of data or too much data and you don't have some time problems, just stick with MySQL or something like that. <laughs> Distributed computing is not that simple. Excellent. Perfect. All right. So with that, thanks very much, Bernard. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Um, it's been really good finding out about uh, the exciting visualization opportunities within uh, within Zeppelin and also um, other notebook interfaces as well. I think it's really cool that you've been able to put port it across multiple platforms. So yeah. thanks very much for all your work. Let's hope the uh, the community takes it on board and, and steers it in a brand new exciting direction. Yeah, and good luck with your new project. Let us know how that pans out. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for the invitation. It was a real pleasure. All right, perfect. So with that, that's about all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode, but until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information, including a feedback form. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email uh, using podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticism, or other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. See you then. Bye.